Hi, friends. Welcome to the Natasha Crane podcast. If you have followed my content for any amount of time in the last year, you have heard me talk repeatedly about the jarring statistics related to the shrinking percent of Americans who have a biblical worldview. I've written and talked about a lot of different studies and numbers, but two of the most pertinent data points are these. 65% of Americans self-identify as Christians. But research on people's actual beliefs and behavior shows that only about 6% have a biblical worldview. This huge gap between those who identify as Christians and those who hold beliefs you might assume to be consistent with the historic Christian faith has numerous implications for the church today. But how exactly do researchers define a biblical worldview? How do they get to that 6% estimate? That's a question I have received from many people over the last several months. Today on the show, I have a guest who is better equipped to answer that question than anyone else because he directed the research. Joining me today is Dr. George Barna, who's the Director of Research for Arizona Christian University's Cultural Research Center. So Dr. Barna, I'm truly excited to talk with you. I've followed your work and consumed your research for many years now, and it's an honor to have this conversation. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Natasha. It's good to be with you. So the Cultural Research Center puts out a continual stream of fascinating research, and I read just about all of it, and I feel like I could talk with you for hours because there is so much to discuss. But in the interest of brevity, we're going to focus on the work you've done with the American Worldview Inventory, which is what produced the data that I described a couple of minutes ago. And my hope is really to give people a much better understanding of how you define a biblical worldview. But we're going to take the long way there because I realize it's not a simple question to answer. You're not just looking at answers to a single question and then placing people in or out of a worldview box. In fact, from my understanding, you evaluate answers to 54 questions on beliefs and behavior across eight different categories. So let's start there. Can you tell us what those categories are and briefly explain why each one is important from your perspective in defining a biblical worldview? Part of the reason why we have eight different categories is because if you understand what a worldview is, it's the, the filter through which you make every decision in life. So every day you're making thousands of decisions, and the choices that you land on have to be based on something, and that something is your worldview. So we're talking about something that is broad, it's deep, it's comprehensive, and in order for us to understand how those decisions get made, we have to study your worldview with that same kind of breadth and depth. And in order to do that, that's why we have the eight different categories. We're not just asking eight questions. We've got multiple questions in each category. So the categories are things like human character and human nature. You know, which gets into a, a lot of different things about who we are, how we see ourselves, how we interact with the world. Uh, another category is, is God, creation, and history. Our understanding and definition of God, uh, the, the whole aspect of what does the history of the world have to do with the future of the world and my place within it. Uh, questions related to another category, purpose and calling. Are we here just as spontaneous individuals who do whatever we want, or is there some kind of pre-designed purpose by the one who designed us and who designed the world in which we live? Uh, you know, another category would be sin, salvation, and God relationship. Do we believe that there is such a thing as sin? How do we know what sin is? Does sin have an impact on our life? If it does, what's the nature of that impact? What could influence that impact? Those types of questions. Uh, another category is family and the value of life. You know, do we believe that life is sacred or that it's just whatever we make it? Uh, you know, what about family? Is that also something that is a human contrivance and that we determine its contours and its value and our roles and all of those kinds of issues? Another category is lifestyle, behavior, and relationships. How do we make the choices about our interactions with other people, our interactions with tangible goods, our ideas about uh, how we're going to act toward other people, 
what is the value of relationships? How do we shape them? Uh, does that shape have any kind of spiritual impact or influence? Uh, Bible truth and morals, one of the big categories, you know, of what we believe about God's word. Is there such a thing as absolute moral truth? Morality, right and wrong. How do we determine what is right and wrong? Is there right and wrong? Or do we just do whatever comes naturally, whatever feels good, whatever is most popular, etc.? And our faith practices, looking at things like whether or not we engage in and how we engage in worship, prayer, uh, thanks to a deity, uh, whether or not we confess sins, whether or not we seek the will of a higher power, or is it just our will that matters, um, issues like obedience and stewardship, Bible reading, all of that are the kinds of things that we measure as well. So when you put all of those things together, you get a pretty good definition of who the person is, how they think, how they see themselves, how they see the spiritual world and their relationship to it, and what all of that has to do with the choices they make from moment to moment. That is a really helpful overview because I think a lot of Christians have a very simplistic understanding of what a biblical worldview would be. They think, for example, that it would just be your view of the Bible. One question, check it off. I believe that the Bible is God's word. But that means so many different things to different people, which is why you see so many different beliefs amongst people who identify as Christians and culture. And so when you really lay it out like the way that you just did to think about all those things, that's going to be how you can get a much more robust understanding of who actually does view reality through the lens of what the Bible teaches. Lots of people can say the Bible is God's word, but that doesn't mean that they actually have beliefs that are consistent with that. So I think that's a, that's a really helpful overview. I want to talk for a bit about the relationships between beliefs and behavior. You mentioned that from a research perspective. So in your worldview research that you did with Summit Ministries in 2017, you defined at the time a biblical word, uh, excuse me, a biblical worldview based on answers to just six questions about belief and no questions about behavior. And for those who are interested, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. While those kinds of results, I think, are probably easier to understand for consumers of the research, you obviously had reasons for expanding the survey to 54 questions now on belief and behavior. So can you share what led to the development of that much more extensive survey that adds the behavioral component? Yeah, and, and uh, I know it's not polite to correct your host, but Go for uh, it. there's something I, I need to correct here, which is that 2017 research was done by the Barna Group. I sold the Barna Group in 2009, so I have nothing to do with that research. I have done research for Summit. We did some this past summer uh, for them using the 54-question model that we currently use. So, yeah, there has been a, a transition uh, originally, when I started studying worldview, nobody was studying it back in the 90s. I started doing it back then when I had the Barna Research Group uh, because it, it was very important. And Chuck Colson and I had spent a lot of time together talking about the church and our nation and the future and spirituality and our culture. And uh, he actually commissioned me to start doing research related to worldview. And, and that eventually, some of that eventually came out in his book, How Now Shall We Live, uh, with uh, Nancy Piercy, and they did a great job there. But um, six, or, or the six questions was a model that I started with 30-some years ago, and over the course of time, kept investigating, well, how accurate does this seem based on additional research that I was doing? And eventually, one of the things that I discovered is that you cannot simply measure beliefs if you want to know a person's worldview. Because the, the thing that became clear to me is you do what you believe. And so if I really want to know what you believe, I have to also look at those things you tell me you believe. Are you acting on them? Because if you don't act on them, if you don't implement them, if you don't apply those beliefs, my contention is you don't really believe them. You're telling me that because you think it's the right answer. You're telling me that because that's what you've heard other people say. You're telling me that because you think it's the answer that smart people are supposed to give, whatever it may be. But you don't own that answer because if you did, you'd behave accordingly. And, and therefore, you know, a couple of things happened. One was I realized, okay, we've got to look at behavior. The other thing I realized is 
the six questions don't cover enough ground to really give us insight into all the decisions that people are making. It's a good start, but it's not enough. And so that's really why why we expanded the survey to cover a lot more questions now. It's a lot more expensive. It's a lot more difficult. It takes a lot longer. It's more complex to analyze. I mean, there's all kinds of issues that come along with jumping from six questions to 54. But I contend that everybody has one particular value that drives them in their life. For me, that value is truth. And so everything that I do is geared toward trying to identify the truth. Not because I'm better than anybody else. I'm just wired such that I want to know truth. I want to uphold and, and, and advance truth because we know that God is the very definition of truth. And so it's one of my ways of, of developing my relationship with him more deeply, understanding him more deeply, honoring and worshiping him more deeply, serving him more appropriately, all of those things. Truth is, is key. And so moving from six to 54 questions is, is simply part of that process. And uh, I, I think now with the 54 questions, looking at both beliefs and behavior, it enables us to evaluate both the head and the heart as opposed to just one of those. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and hopefully that will help people to understand why, you know, it's not just a simple process of getting to a couple of questions. You're trying to get to the comprehensive picture there. So help us peek inside what kind of process you go through to choose those 54 questions. You know, that's not a magic number per se. And theoretically, there are countless questions that you could use. So how did you land on those in particular? And I'm sure that's a big question, but help people understand the market research process from that perspective. Yeah, and it's a great point, Natasha. I mean, what, one of the things that uh, a friend of mine, theologian Wayne Grudem, had said to me, we were talking about the, the research that I was doing and some that he's done. And uh, he said, well, you know, to measure a person's worldview, you'd have to measure every biblical principle. You know, look at everything in the scripture and measure it. It's like, oh, Wayne, don't go there. You know, I, there's, there's enough money and time for us to do that, you know. So we're, we're trying to get a, a, a simpler measure, uh, you know, and, and for years I've been measuring whether or not people are born again. And one of the caveats I, I always try to give with that is, now understand, this is our estimate based on our meager methods. Only God really knows if a person is truly born again. We're just trying to estimate where things are at and how people can get closer to God and what we can do to get them there. But, you know, we're not claiming perfection. We're not claiming to be omniscient and all this. Uh, that's his purview, not ours. But in that process, then, what, what we did was, uh, you know, I'm a professor at Arizona Christian University, and we do this research through something called the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. And, and so when I came on board there, one of the first things we set about to do was to develop a tool that would help us to measure the worldview of our students. And so we put that together, but in order to do it, I brought together the faculty and administration. So we talked about what is a biblical worldview, and I had people from uh, the biblical studies program, the theology program, the philosophy program, the humanities program, political science, psychology, and family, all of these different academic disciplines, but at ACU, one of the, our distinctives is that every course is taught from a biblical worldview. So we came together, we literally spent months, you know, going back and forth about, but what does that mean? What does it look like? How do you do it? Why do you do it? How do we know that that's the right way? How do other people do it? Why don't we do it that way? There were great conversations and debates going on, you know, but in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, wow, this is all fascinating, but I got to come up with a questionnaire. So let's, you know, let's, let's narrow this down a little bit and say, okay, but really, what are the kernels of truth that enable a person to have the mind of Christ? That's what we're trying to get to. That's what a biblical worldview essentially is, because you can't live like Jesus unless you think like Jesus. And so we want to know what is that thought process? What are the key principles that drive the decisions that Jesus made? Because we want to do exactly the same thing. Our life is to be an imitation of Christ. So that was the nature of the conversation we had. It, it took us close to a year you know, of meeting uh -huh. regularly to kind of beat each other up until we said, okay, we think these are the things 
that if you don't have them, you're missing an important component of what enables a person to think like Christ so that ultimately they can live like Christ. And then what we did was go through the, the whole research process of trying to say, okay, how do we operationalize these concepts, these biblical principles, in a way that isn't so enculturated that we're just measuring the culture, but we're really measuring God's truth within a culture. And so that that was, you know, probably the next series of battles that I had to fight through, you know, from a research perspective. And, uh, you know, then we tested all of those, and, you know, we, we can talk about that whole process. But uh, that's really what we went through was really a lot of theological, philosophical, and practical debates about what does it mean to be a Christian. And, uh, you know, it means being Christ-like, but what does that mean? And so tearing that back, it's almost like we had an onion, and we had to tear back layer after layer of the onion to get to the core uh, of, of that onion. That that is such a an eye opening uh, way to explain how you you thought of it. I would love to be a fly on the wall during those conversations and just hear <laughs> all the back and forth on that. Because so many people, uh, there's a certain defensiveness I've come across when I talk about this research with people, and you know I, I talk about it when I do speaking events. I've talked about it in my podcasts online, and there's a certain group of people who will come back and say, "Oh, so you just want to exclude people from you know who who is a true." Christian or, you know, oh, you're going to pretend to think that you know who is saved. And that's that has nothing to do with what you're doing here. You're saying how many people actually have beliefs that would be consistent with the way that Christ himself thinks and how do those beliefs transform how you live your life? And that's a very different thing than saying, oh, we're just trying to say who's in or out, a very common claim that I hear, or trying to guess who's saved. To be clear for anyone listening to this, this has nothing to do with who is saved. That's between each person and the Lord. This isn't about trying to, based on some kind of research, decide if a given person is saved or not. So I think that is so helpful, everything that you just said as some background. So kind of along those lines, for those who are wondering if your results, that 6%, would be vastly different if you had used a different number of questions or a different set of 54 questions. Explain how, as a researcher, you test your survey design to determine how well it's meeting your objectives. So you kind of just described what your objective is, but maybe walk us through how you go about testing that. So you come out of those meetings and you say, okay, well, here are the principles that we think line up with what we're trying to do. How do you know that the survey itself delivers on that? Well, uh, Natasha, as you probably know, I mean, there's a whole series of processes that you go through to do what, what's called reliability testing, and then there's a different series you go through to do what's called uh, uh, validity testing. And so after we had identified what we thought were the, the core principles that needed to be tested, perfectly recognizing that there's a whole range of other things we could throw into the pot, I then started putting together different questionnaires and testing each questionnaire to see what we were coming up with. And, and there are different processes you use for reliability and validity testing. But the issue was we want to have something that is statistically defensible, something that we know each time we do this, we're, first of all, measuring the same thing each time. When people hear these questions, they know what we're asking, and they're answering the question that we think we're asking. So that's part of it. The other thing is that, that we wanted to know that if we have compatible samples over time that we're testing with, that we're going to get consistent results because the questions are interpreted consistently by the base of people that we're interviewing. So there, there was, again, months and months and uh, many dollars worth of, of efforts put into ensuring that what we're measuring is what we think we're measuring, and we're measuring it in a way that is reliable because it's consistent in terms of how people understand what we're asking, how they understand the possible answers that we've given to them. And, and that's something else that a lot of people don't understand. They, they think maybe we just ask a question, you know, what do you think of God? You know, and then we let them spout out for, you know, two, three, four minutes, and we try to make sense of it. In these particular kinds of surveys, when, when we have our questions, we tinker and tinker and tinker with the wording of the questions 
because there's a lot of methodological research that shows that by changing as little as one word in a question, you can alter the outcomes of the research by more than 50 percentage points. So you've got to be very careful with the language you use. But then also, we're giving them answers to choose from. And that that's partly what made this process take so long to develop, a couple years of development, was that we're not just testing whether or not a person has a biblical worldview. We're testing what is their worldview. So if they don't have a biblical worldview, and most people don't, well, what worldview do they have? Everybody has a worldview. Your worldview develops between 15 to 18 months of age and the age of 13. You need a worldview to get by every day. Why? Because as we said, your worldview is your decision-making filter. You're making decisions all day long. So you can't stop and refuse to make decisions and not live your life because you haven't developed a worldview. No, you develop that worldview very, very young, and it sticks with you for the rest of your life after the age of 13. A person's worldview doesn't change much during our teens and 20s. We'll refine it. We'll figure out how to apply it. We may reshape it a bit. But, I mean, by the time you reach your mid to late 20s, it's concrete. And if you want to change it, it's very, very difficult because now you not just have to develop a worldview. You've got to get rid of the worldview that you've been living by for years. That's a difficult process. And then to replace it with something that you think is more truthful, more appropriate, more helpful, that's hard to do. That's why we don't see much worldview change among adults and why shaping the worldview of children is critical. It's also, by the way, why you see advertisers and marketers focusing more and more on children because they know that as the worldview is being shaped, that's going to impact their product purchasing patterns for the rest of their life. So they want to get in the game early and have a hand in developing that mindset, that heart set of, of children. But I'm sorry, I get off track a lot here. Feel free to cut me off at any time. But anyway, what, what, we, uh, what we wanted to make sure we were doing was uh, having questions that gave people options that would enable us to determine, okay, if they don't have a biblical worldview, uh, what would a Marxist think in response to this question? What would a secular humanist think? What would a postmodernist think? What would a nihilist think? What would an Eastern mysticist think? Uh, it, you know, all these different worldviews, a moralistic therapeutic deist, uh, and, and so forth. So we have the, the mindset of all of those different worldviews embedded within the questionnaire as well. So as a person is going through this, they can pick the response that isn't the one we're trying to force upon them. It's like, well, you say you go to an evangelical church, so you must believe this. It's like, no, we, we don't care where you go to church. We're trying to measure truth here. And so you tell me what you really believe, what you really do. And then at the back end, we'll feed back to you, oh, here's what that profile looks like. We're not trying to predetermine it, try, trying to say we know who you are just by the language you use. You tell us who you are, and we'll just hold up the mirror and show you this is the portrait you painted of yourself. And I'm not passing judgment on it, but I tell you what, if you want a biblical worldview, I can tell you whether or not it appears that you have one. And if you do, great. Here's how you can strengthen it. If you don't, Here's some areas that you might want to rethink because your worldview doesn't really fit with the biblical principles that we're measuring, which we believe would be a comprehensive view of how a person could imitate the life of Christ. Oh, yeah, I, I absolutely love that you guys are capturing the broader picture of what is the worldview and not just looking at the biblical worldview, yes or no. And I, for anyone who's interested, I'm also going to put links to some of that research because you have shared a lot of those results uh, through your website at the Cultural Research Center. So I'll have links to all of that in the show notes. Uh, one of my favorite statistics from that that I've shared a lot of times with people is the 88% number, that 88% percent of people have a worldview that actually doesn't make logical sense when you put all of the beliefs together. It's incoherent and you, you call the syncretism. And I think that is so 
is so important for people to understand because especially as Christians, when we're trying to share truth with others and we're trying to look for some common ground, when people hold beliefs sort of like puzzle pieces that don't actually fit together, they don't logically fit together, I think that's an opportunity to speak into that and to show the logical inconsistencies in what people are believing to start to get them thinking about their own beliefs and and how those pieces don't fit together. And so I, I just I love the 88% um, number and, and just thinking that the vast majority of people around us hold beliefs that don't necessarily fit together. I'm kind of going off on a tangent, but do you have any anything that you would add to that about that particular research? Because I do find it so fascinating. Yeah, and I think it's a great point you bring up. You know, one of the things that I've learned, I've been doing this for more than 40 years now. And over the course of time, even someone like me can learn things from that. And, you know, it's it, it's an issue where what I've discovered about Americans is that we are not reflective people. We're not philosophically inclined. We don't like to sit down and think. America is the nation it is because we're a country of people who like to do stuff. We're active, action-oriented, productive people. And so we're not the kind that are going to sit down and second-guess ourselves in most cases. It's got to take something to shake us out of our lethargy. And and part of the the challenge that we have is that right now we did a piece of research for Family Research Council. I also work with them as a senior research fellow at the Center for Biblical Worldview there. And what we discovered is that 51% of Americans think they have a biblical worldview. Only 6% do, as best we can tell. So there's this humongous gap. Most people who call themselves Christian think they have a biblical worldview. And yet, as far as we can tell, the vast majority of them do not. And so we're hoping that we're able to take some of this data and shake people up a little bit and say, wait a minute, maybe things aren't the way you think they are. Maybe you haven't figured out some of the things you thought you would put to rest. Maybe we need to do some more reflective study here into the scriptures to figure out, yeah, do I really believe all the things that Jesus modeled for us, all the things that he taught us, all the things that God gave to us so that we can thrive, which is God's goal for us. That's why he gave us all this. It's not just to give us a bunch of don'ts and you know make our life miserable. He wants our life to be joyful. He wants it to be fruitful. And so his principles will lead to that. But maybe there are a bunch of those principles that we haven't thought of. And frankly, some of the research we've done in terms of, of preaching and the kinds of information that people get from churches indicates why so many people think they have a biblical worldview, but they don't because we're not getting that kind of teaching from the churches we're going to, from the kinds of books we're reading, from the kinds of media that we're, we're attending to. All of those kinds of things come into play here. Where are we getting our information? What's influencing us? Do we really want to be Christ-like? Are we willing to make life sacrifices and changes in order to let God transform us and renew our minds so that we would be like Christ? That's that's just one more reason why your research is so important. It's not just for data geeks like you and I probably both are. It's not just for interest and wanting to analyze things and put some numbers out. A lot of people think that, you know, we're just trying to scare people and, and things like that. No, it's not about that. This is actually part of a spiritual battle to understand how far we are in America as Christians from believing and behaving in the ways that would be consistent with what the Bible teaches. And and so I, I totally agree with you. It's a wake-up call for people. And that's part of why I love sharing your research so much is just to get people thinking, what about me? Do I have a biblical worldview? Would I be in that 6%? And it's it's just so important for people to really do some self-reflection about. Um, so to date, you haven't released the individual questions to the public. So those 54 we've been talking about. So I've heard from some people who are skeptical of the results because they wonder if maybe the questions are over limiting the definition of a biblical worldview to what we would call maybe secondary issues. So in particular, I have heard people wonder if you have to have your beliefs line up with those of a specific denomination to be considered biblical, or if you have to have a particular belief on the age of the earth or evolution. So those two things continually come up when I hear from people. Can you speak to those concerns specifically that this gets into the area of secondary issues? 
Yeah, I mean, frankly, a worldview, because it's your decision-making apparatus, is abundantly practical in nature. And so the kinds of questions that we're looking at are not those that you would learn in seminary in Theology 408. The kinds of things that we're measuring are very basic biblical truths and principles. The kinds of stuff that you would hope would be taught in Sunday school, in Sunday services, in the kinds of popular Christian books that people might buy, those types of issues. So, you know, typically the people that I hear who are uh, making derogatory comments about the research are those who maybe don't fit within the framework of a biblical worldview because they're kind of on the outer edges of theology. Not everybody, obviously. There's some great comments, some great criticisms that we've heard that have helped us to, to rethink or reshape some of what we do, and I welcome all that. But, but you know, people get really concerned about, oh, you know, it's a bunch of eggheads studying stuff that really doesn't have anything to do with the reality of life. God is all about the truth for everyday life. And so those are the kinds of things that, that we're trying to measure. And when we put all of this together, I mean, basically what we did was we went back to the historical creeds. We went back to the things that the church, capital C, has agreed on for a couple of thousand years. We're not denominational. We're not seeking to push one particular thread of theology. Uh, that's not what this is about. This is about someday you're going to stand before a holy and righteous God who's going to cause you to give account for every thought you have, every word you said, every deed that you did. And we simply want to help you, build you up, to be the kind of person that God puts you here on earth to be. So the more that you can know his way of thinking, his parameters for our lives, that's all we're really trying to measure. And that that's sort of how I always respond to people, because knowing, having having read about the way that you do the research in the past, I know that that's the case, but I just had to have you answer that question, because so many people do come yeah. back on those particular things. And, you know, to I don't know how to say this gently, but to be honest, I completely agree with you um, that when I see people pushing back, usually it is because they have beliefs that they know would not be consistent with what Christians have historically believed. And so it kind of goes back to that defensiveness that we were talking about earlier, that there's a certain level of, hey, are you telling me I'm out, that I can't call myself a Christian because I you know, don't believe this or that? And so you get some of that pushback. But again, it's not about putting people in or out of a box, but rather of saying, are your beliefs and your behavior consistent with what the Bible teaches? So we've talked a lot about the questions themselves now. So let's say that you have your survey in hand, you're ready to go get answers from people. One of the questions I received from my audience was, where do they find people to answer the questions? So in other words, how do you go about finding a representative sample and how many people do you survey for the American Worldview Inventory? Yeah, great questions. We essentially have a nationally representative sample of adults 18 years of age and older within the 50 United States. That's what we're shooting for. Every year we do the annual American Worldview Inventory Survey. Uh, during the first quarter of the year, we survey 2,000 adults. And we have geographic quotas so that we make sure that all areas, geographic areas of the country are represented in the proportions that the U.S. Uh, census tells us the population is distributed into. So we do that in terms of the way that we collect the data. We employ what's called a mixed mode data collection approach, which means that we use two different methods of data collection. One is interviewing people by telephone. So we do a thousand what are called random digit dial interviews with people by telephone. And we also now, because of the changes in how telephones are used in our country, have to have a mix of cell phones and landlines. And so I think we're at about 60% cell phones, uh, maybe 40% landlines. Maybe it's 70, 30, something like that. I forget exactly. But, uh, you know, so we're trying to be responsive to that as well recognizing that that might introduce uh, distinctions or differences into the sample. So we want to be careful about that. 
The other mode besides telephone that we use, uh, oh, and by the way, with a random digit dial sample, what that means is we don't go to telephone books and just go, you know, from page one through page 50, if telephone books even exist anymore. Uh, basically, what happens is you can get from the phone companies uh, within an area code, and we match that to the geography, as I was talking about, uh, stratifying geographically before. Uh, you have the area code, then you know the prefixes that are working, the first three digits of a phone number that are working within an area code, and then the computer randomly generates the, the final digits of the telephone number so that everybody in the country has a known and random probability uh, of uh, an equal probability of being in our sample. So then we, we do those interviews. The other thousand interviews that we do are done online. And again, there's a complex process that we use there. It's a, a, something called the fulcrum platform where there are millions of individuals who get contacted to take part in uh, uh, online surveys. Uh, we have, again, some modeling that enables us to determine who will actually be asked to participate in that. We don't contact millions of people. Uh, you know, if you did that, your sample wouldn't be valid because your response rate would be so small, you'd have all kinds of, of issues. Uh, but anyway, those, those are the two approaches that we take. It gets pretty complicated to explain it. It takes a long time for us to put the samples together, uh, but then we go out, we get those people, and uh, we combine the data and start to analyze it. So for those who are listening, I hope that the bottom line from that response that you're getting is that it's not that Dr. Barna is standing out in front of a mall with a clipboard hoping somebody will answer his questions. Uh, in a market research kind of uh, setting, there is an enormous amount of thought that goes into your sample design because your results and how you extrapolate your results to get some kind of answer at the end of your research depends significantly on whether or not your sample is valid in the first place. So it's an absolutely critical step and researchers go to significant lengths in order to make sure that, that these things are in place in the way that they should. And just as a random side note, this was my first job out of college, actually. I graduated and with a degree in economics, and I went to work for an organization called Arthur Anderson in the statistical analysis division. And the very first thing I had to learn how to do was design statistically valid samples and learn how to do all the different stratifications and segmentations. And and uh, I found it fascinating. And that, so I, I really am a data geek, and I appreciate hearing all of, all of that data from you and, and how you go about doing doing it. So let's fast forward. You have the answers from the sample. You're ready to extrapolate the results, or in other words, you're ready to get results that you're going to be able to make a statement about with the overall population. You want to get your estimate of how many people have a biblical worldview. It's the big moment. This is where we get back to that big picture question of how you define a biblical worldview based on your questions and the results. So I think in many people's minds, you're just counting up everyone who gave one particular answer to all 54 questions, and that's your group for a biblical worldview. But I'm guessing it's much more nuanced than that. So help us understand what goes into defining the biblical worldview from the data once you have it back, this data that ultimately produces the 6% estimate. Okay, again, statistically, it's a little complex. I'll try to make it comprehensible. But essentially what happens is, no, we do not expect every person to get every question to comport with biblical truth. Uh, that'd be great. Um, we don't often find that to be the case. Most people have various elements of their worldview that are not in line with what the Scripture teaches. And of course, 94 out of every 100 people don't have a biblical worldview at all. So most of their perspectives are not in line with what the scriptures teach. The way that, that we went about this, you, you've got to have some cutoff where you say, okay, the, we're going to count this profile of answers as being a biblical worldview, but we're not going to count this person's profile as being a biblical worldview. And, and the way I went about this was saying, all right, let me see what I've learned from my research over the last 40 plus years. I've done a lot of work in politics, you know, work with four presidential campaigns, a lot of other campaigns over the course of years, done a lot of public policy research and so forth. The beauty of politics is that come election day, you realize whether you were right or wrong. 
And so you can recalibrate all of your efforts. What did I get right? What did I get wrong? And you learn from that. And one of the things that I've learned over the, the last four plus decades is that when somebody is consistent with a way of living or an ideology or a philosophy, at least four out of every five times, the choices they make are that consistent, 80% or more of the time, people come to recognize that person as embodying whatever that ideology or that philosophy is. They say, oh yeah, I mean, he's a real Marxist. You know, yeah, he's, he's a real Christian. You know, whatever it may be, because they consistently see it being practiced, not just talked about, but practiced. And, and you know, then if, if you're in the 60 to 80 percent in that range, it's like, well, yeah, I mean, he, he's, he's mostly conservative, but, you know, every once in a while he goes off the rails. You know, yeah, I'd say you know, he's generally postmodern, but, I mean, he's got this real, uh, you know, nihilist point of view on this thing. So then you've got the, the leaners, you know, people who are leaning in that direction, but they haven't sold out to it. And so I took that same approach here. I said, okay, again, only God really knows what any person's worldview is. But let's take that same approach that we've seen in real life and let's apply it to worldview. So anybody who, for all the questions we ask about beliefs, 80% or more, they have the biblical perspectives that, that they say that's, that's what they believe. And then let's look at all of our behavioral questions. And if they've got 80% of, or more of those that, again, are in concert with biblical perspectives, we'll say that person has a biblical worldview. Now, that doesn't mean they got everything right. That means out of 54 questions, they could get 10, quote, unquote, wrong. So, I mean, that gives you a lot of leeway there to be imperfect and yet still be hot on God's trail, if you will. You know, and, and then we call those people integrated disciples because what they've done is they've integrated God's truth into their life. You can hear it when they talk. You can see it when they act. And, and so they're disciples of Christ. That's what they're trying to be like, a follower of Jesus. That's what a disciple is, a follower of someone. So we call them integrated disciples. There's a second category of people that we have we call emergent followers. These are those people I was describing as leaning but not really owning it. And so they're in that 60 to 79% range of having biblical principles both in beliefs and behavior. And then the third category would be those that we call world citizens, people who are really living according to what the world says you ought to be thinking and doing. And that's the vast, vast majority, you know, 75% of Americans, even a majority of people who regularly attend Christian churches are world citizens. So that's kind of how we, we put that together. Now, could somebody quibble with the 80% mark? Absolutely. I mean, I fought myself over that for a while. <laughs> Jeez, should it be 75%? Should it be 90%? Should it be 50%? You know, what should it be? But I kept going back to, but I found through real-world stuff out of the political realm that you're really perceived as being an owner of that philosophy, that lifestyle, that way of doing business, uh, you know, when, when at least four out of five times you're in harmony with the thing that you say you're all about. And so that, that's why I wound up there. Well, that's extremely helpful. And I think people have to realize, too, that, yes, you do have to draw a line. I think most people get that. But even if you move the line, you know, a little bit one way or another, we're not t talking about the difference between 6% and 60%. It's not going to change the results that drastically. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so so and, it's not, and, we're not going to get anywhere near that 65% of people who are self-identified Christians. And so the story, so to speak, stays the same. 6%, that's a helpful estimate to help people start thinking about, you know, the, the difference here. Is it more like 4% or 8%? Maybe it's 12%. Well, okay, maybe, but the story is the same. 65%, almost two thirds of Americans say, hey, I'm a Christian. If you ask them from a list, you know, how do you best identify yourself? And some very small percentage of that, whether you want to go with the 6% or something around there, depending on the line that gets drawn, actually holds beliefs consistent with a biblical worldview. And I think that's, that's sort of the bottom line you're getting to. You're not coming at this and saying, I want everyone to know it's exactly 6%. Right. And, and that, you know, earlier we were talking about testing. 
uh, reliability and validity and how many questions and you know what 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 balance of questions and that's part of what went into all of the early process here was as we got the information all right if if we had 60 questions would it would it change it very much and we found no actually it wouldn't uh, you know if we had 48 questions would it change it actually it wouldn't so why did we use 54 because it gave me the ability to have a better balance between beliefs and behaviors and within those eight different categories to have enough questions in the categories to try to help people and say you know what where you're losing it is is in the Bible truth and morals aspect of your beliefs and behavior if I've only got two questions there I can't really help them I can't make any comment about it but if I've got six eight ten questions in that realm I can come back to him and say, you know what, this is a strong suit for you, or this is a real weak area. If I were you, I'd put a lot more attention into trying to understand that. So that's part of what all this is. And again, going back to why do we even do this? Because we want to help people. We want people to know, love, and serve Christ with all their heart, mind, strength, and soul. And in order to do that, this is just one tool that might help them to be a better disciple. Right. And, and I think it would be amazing if any individual could take this to see if they have a biblical worldview. And I've heard or I've read somewhere along the way that you guys are working on something like that. Is this going to be released in some kind of public version at some point? And if so, when could we look forward to that? Yeah, actually, we're, uh, I think it's this week. Yeah, by Labor Day, we will be finished with our final beta testing of the technology to allow people to do that because uh, there's again a lot of gyrations that the technology has to go through to slice and dice all the data and give them these kinds of uh, bits and pieces of information so yes i mean that we've been working on that for over a year and we plan to do a soft launch um, probably starting in october through the end of the year and then we'll do the hard launch really going big with that starting in february of next year but yeah, I mean, the, the plan is not to keep this in the ivory tower. The plan is to take this and make it accessible to as many people as possible so that they can be helped. And so we, part of what's taken so long is developing the group aspect of it so that, let's say, a church who wants to bring their elder board or their staff or maybe their whole congregation through this process and then build a developmental and discipleship process around it they'll have this tool as a starting place to say, oh my goodness, look at this, you know, we're, we're great with, uh, you know, certain aspects, uh, you know, Bible, truth, and morals, we're great with that, but we're terrible with uh, sin and salvation, you know, so we're going to start teaching and preaching more heavily on that, and we'll have more accountability on it, you know, whatever they want to do, but this will be the tool that then, then puts them down a pathway that helps people to grow more deeply. So yes, it's coming. That's amazing. And there are so many applications for that. And when it does come out, I will be sure to be promoting that everywhere uh, so that people can take that and talking about it. So I'm, I'm excited about that. And I hope that I find I have a biblical worldview since I'm <laughs> and talking about this a lot. I, I'm, I'm praying to be part of the 6%. <laughs> but but that, that's fantastic. I, I mean, I'm genuinely excited sitting here listening to you talking about all the applications of this. And, you know, one, I, I do have a few questions that I want to end with that people had submitted. But just one final thing to throw about uh, throw out about the research that you've done. Uh, you know, just recently this week, I got a press release that was talking about the research that you've done on the, the, the worldview of pastors. And it's, uh, I don't know of a better way to put it than it's rather depressing to see just how few pastors of churches have a biblical worldview. You know, you kind of mentioned this earlier, alluded to it, that there's a good reason why so few people have a biblical worldview today. And some of that starts in the church because it's not actually being taught. And you break out this research according to denominational families, and we don't have time to go off to talk about all of this research. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes also, but just wanted to read a couple of things to, to get people thinking about it. And I encourage everyone to go and read this research because it's very important. You cannot assume that you're sitting in a church that is actually preaching biblical truth. So take a look at this research. But a couple of the things that I found really fascinating is that amongst evangelical churches, 37% of the pastors said that having faith matters more than which faith you have. That That is just jarring to me. I mean, you 
you can have poorly placed faith in all kinds of things. I can have faith that there's a unicorn outside my window right now, but that doesn't mean that it was actually based on anything solid that I can be confident in. The Bible doesn't call us to a blind belief. It doesn't say have faith or just trust in whatever you want. We have a firm object of our trust that we are called to trust in Jesus Christ because we have been good, given good reason to place our trust in him. So it's not about just having faith in something. Something. It's about having faith in Jesus. And 37% of evangelical pastors said that having faith matters more than which faith you have. Do you have any thoughts about that one in particular? That really just blew my mind. Well, I mean, there's a whole series of those kinds of measures that are, are just mind-boggling, but scary, and help to explain why American society is in the place that it's in right now. Uh, and and one of the things that we discovered is only 37% of pastors in the country have a biblical worldview. Christian pastors. We're not talking about putting the Hindu leaders in here. I mean, these are just people leading Christian churches. And when we broke it out by the different types of positions that they have in the pastorate, we found that among the worst are children's and youth pastors, where, where you know, down in the single digits have a, have a biblical worldview. So... Given that children's pastors are probably the single most important pastors in churches in America today, the fact that most of them will not lead a child to biblical truth, will not even lead a child to Christ, frankly, is uh, to me very scary. And recognizing that the Bible teaches that we as parents are responsible for the spiritual development of our children, that means I've got to know this about the churches that I'm going to. Are they going to be leading my child in a good direction or not? That's my responsibility as the parent. I can't be happy simply because my child is safe and having a good time playing games and singing songs. I've got to know what's, what's being taught. What are they going to be exposed to? So, I mean, all of that research with pastors to me is, is incredibly important. Uh, you mentioned depressing. It is depressing. You know, a lot of people say, oh, it's Barney. He's just negative. I'm not trying to be negative. I'm a messenger. I'm just trying to bring the information to us. If if you think that information is great, well, good for you. Live your life how you want to live it. Just keep in mind, someday God's going to ask you to give account for that choice. And so all of this is to help us make better choices. And what church we go to, what pastors we listen to, what kind of teaching we're willing to embrace, that's among the choices that we have to look at. And that's why having that worldview information is so critical. And for those who are wondering, you know, about the questions on the survey and have been asking a lot about that, you can see a lot of these different beliefs that they're measuring in this particular report on the biblical worldview of pastors. And so you can see that these are really just the core things. I mean, one of them is uh, determining moral truth is up to each individual. There are no moral absolutes that apply to everyone all the time. 39% of evangelical pastors agreed with that belief. I mean, this is a very basic thing. We're not talking about infant baptism versus adult baptism, right? right? We're talking about the existence of absolute objective truth. This is a core truth that's taught in the Bible, that there is objective truth, that God is truth. Uh, things like human life is sacred. Only 62% of evangelical pastors agreed with that. Think about that for a minute. I mean, especially in light of Roe v. Wade being overturned and a lot of Christians being very surprised at how their fellow Christians responded to that and, and not uh, being supportive of that. When you see that human life is sacred is only agreed upon as a belief by 62% of evangelical pastors, it starts to really shed some light on things. So I, I wish we could do a whole other episode right now just on the pastors, but I will link to that in the show notes. So to end, just a couple of questions that additionally people had asked when I posted on Facebook that I was interviewing you. As someone did want to know, are there significant geographic differences that you found in the worldview results, which I think is a pretty interesting question. Uh, yeah, and there are significant differences. What we find is that people are by far much less likely to have a biblical worldview if they live in the northeastern states. So, you know, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and on north. Uh, much lower levels of a biblical worldview there. The highest levels are in the south, the southern states, but not to the extent different than we used to see. You know, 20, 30 years ago when I measured these things, the south really stood out as a Bible-centric area. That's no longer the case. Now, there's been a lot of geographic mobility, 
you've got a, a much bigger concentration of younger people that are moving to the south. That's changing because we know that the younger a person is, the less likely they are to have a biblical worldview. Uh, churches in the in the south have changed. Uh, so there's a lot of transitions that have taken place that account for that. But still, the south is where you're most likely to encounter people with a biblical worldview. And then people in the Midwest and the far west uh, are, are kind of in the middle. People are often surprised that in the far west, you have people with a biblical <laughs> worldview. They're all work jobs out there. It's like, I, know, I, I live there. I get it. Um, but but no, you, you've got an interesting thing, particularly in California and Oregon, where you've got people who are really dynamic Christians living amidst people who are really dynamically secular. Mm. And, and this is where this area, I believe, is in our country where the battle rages most fiercely for, uh, you know, worldview dominance. But we see that in the research as well. So, yeah, there, there are significant geographic differences. Oh, that's really interesting. I would love to just get into the data and play. <laughs> see, I just keep coming out with my, my nerdiness yeah. in this episode. But, yeah, that would, that would be so fascinating to see because I hadn't really thought about it that way. But when you have the, the great polarization that you're talking about in a place like California where, where we are versus in other places where maybe there's a, a greater mix of, you know, the, the whole syncretism like we were talking about earlier, that's, a, that, that's an interesting interesting question. Someone else wanted to know what statistic is not significant now, but is trending in a direction that we should be paying attention to? Does anything jump to mind? Yeah, I, I guess uh, I'd rephrase the question because frankly, if, uh, if I look at the statistics, uh, every statistic is significant. And so I, I wouldn't say, oh, well, we don't really pay attention to that number. We pay attention to every number. We, we don't want to waste people's time asking questions about things that don't matter. And so we look at everything. And I would say, you know, the question asked about, you know, something that's trending. Well, if it's trending, then it's very significant. You know, and I wouldn't say, oh, we won't pay attention to that till five years from now, because that's when that trend will be most relevant. If we can begin to see that pattern developing now, we jump on it now. So, uh, you know, uh, but the, the other challenge here is having begun doing these national studies just in 2020, I don't have enough of a trend line to start saying to you, okay, here's, here's the big issue. I can tell you where we're weak and we're strong today, uh, you know, where I think we should be stronger today. But statistically, can I say, yeah, look at the trend line. I don't have that, that longevity yet. It's the same issue we have at our university. We do these um, tracking studies, the longitudinal study with our students. Every single year, every student at ACU takes this test. This, this, this survey. And, you know, it's all done anonymously, but we're trying to look as a faculty and administration at we're promising parents we're going to improve your students' worldview. That's our job. How do we know we're doing it? Most Christian universities say they're doing it. Nobody has any proof. You know, they have some stories. Everybody has stories. Anecdotes aren't reality. So we're trying to get the statistical evidence, but we're only a couple of years into it. So we've begun to identify things that, you know, we're wide awake, we're alert to. It's like this looks like maybe an area where we could improve. Let's get a couple more measures, you know, and but let's start looking at that now. So that's kind of how that process works. You, you wake up at first, but then you start making the changes when you've got enough data to justify making those changes. That is going to be fascinating to see over time as you have more and more years of the, the worldview inventory, for sure. So yeah. last question. You spend a lot of time doing the research itself, but surely you have a lot of thoughts as well on how we as Christians should respond. And you've shared some of those thoughts already, but can you just leave us with some of your insights on what you think personally we can do to increase the percent of Christians who have a biblical worldview? So out of that 65%, the ones who don't have a biblical worldview, what, what are the key levers to increasing that 6%? Uh, Natasha, I go back and say all of this relates to discipleship. So if we're not actually building disciples, which I would argue we're not, then we need to rethink the process. Because if we just keep doing more of it and you know doing it more intensely, more urgently, but it's the wrong process, we're going to create the wrong stuff. That's insanity. And so we need to rethink what discipleship could look like in America. I go back to some of the, the complementary studies that I've done to the worldview research we're doing. 
looking at how lives get transformed and, and so forth. And one of the things that I've learned is that really discipleship is about two things. It's about relationship and it's about communication. And so in terms of relationship, I'd say we need to rethink how do we build trust so that we have the opportunity and the privilege to mentor or coach other people. They won't allow us to coach them unless they trust us. And we're asking them to give us a precious resource, which is time. And so for them to trust us with their time so that we can build new ideas, new practices into their lifestyle, that's a difficult thing to do. And it's critical that we get there because one of the things I found is that really the only way that people's lives change is when they're being coached by somebody who's a little bit spiritually more mature than they are. And they're willing to reach back and say, look, I don't have all the answers. I'm not perfect. I'm still trying to grow. But here's a few things I've learned. I'm happy to share them with you. Maybe we can kind of walk through this and work through this together. If you're willing to trust me, you know, don't trust me until you watch me and let me model this for you. And if it impresses you enough that you'd be willing to let me influence you, then let's get together and go on this journey together. So that's the relational component. The, the communication component of how do we reshape somebody's worldview is, first of all, we've got to take a look at what do we perceive and believe the grand narrative of Christianity to be. Now understand, in our culture today, postmodernists, for instance, say, don't believe any grand narratives. There are no grand narratives. You know, live every moment as if it's the only moment. Uh, well, I mean, that's not a biblical perspective. You want to live that way, that's fine, but you've just kind of taken yourself out of the mainstream of biblical Christianity and, and recognize that that has dramatic consequences for everything else in your life. This is where worldview matters. And so, you know, let's get a grip on what is that grand narrative uh, of what Christianity is. Let's think then about what are the principles that build that narrative or that emerge from that narrative and talk about the stories. Because in our culture, people, from what I can tell from my research, they learn most effectively today by hearing stories, by seeing it modeled by other people, by watching, observing, imitating. That's a big thing. But also part of that communication process is then taking those principles and repeating them over and over and over and over in a different context each time, perhaps, but making sure that people are constantly exposed and re-exposed to, to those same principles. And how do you do that? Through the course of dialogue with people. Any kind of conversation, no, it needs to be a Socratic dialogue where if I'm your mentor, what I'm doing is I'm just asking you questions. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm asking you why you've chosen to do what you're doing and then asking you questions about how that reflects biblical truths versus worldly truths uh, or principles. Uh, you know, all of these kinds of things people are learning today through the questioning process. And so we've got to be adept at having those kinds of conversations where we're not beating somebody else up or berating them because of what they're doing, but simply asking them to justify or explain why they've chosen the route they've chosen. And what you find is more often than not when you do that, when somebody, first of all, has to explain why they're doing that, they can't because they haven't thought about it. And then when they think about it, they realize, even though they may not want to say it to you, they're thinking to themselves, holy moly, what a stupid choice I made. I need to rethink that. I'm going to go home and rethink that. They may not do it in front of somebody else because they're embarrassed, but they are going to go home and rethink it because they realize, I've been caught, but this is a good thing. I can do better. I want to do better. People don't want to be morons. People don't want to live like idiots. People want to be the best person they can be. And the more that we, through this kind of mentoring process, can help them to do that, and through that kind of qualitative accountability where we're not undermining them, but we're trying to raise them up, we're trying to bless them. You know, the whole Genesis 12 principle of I've been blessed to be a blessing to others. That is amazing advice, and I 
I pray that the research that you're doing will reach many, especially as it's coming out for many people to take the surveys themselves so that people can start to think more about it and be able to be in a position to communicate better. Because whereas we desperately need the communication that you're saying, a lot of people aren't equipped yet to be able to communicate in that way. And so this is sort of the beginning of that. And you have been doing so much amazing research over many years. And I just, I thank you personally for everything that you're doing. And I thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show today. I know this is gonna be very helpful for a lot of people to better understand the research and to think more about what it means to have a biblical worldview. Can you share where people can go to sign up for all of your research updates? And then I would tell everyone you need to do this, just you know, stop the episode when we're done talking here, go to where he's gonna tell you and sign up to get them. I get all of them in my inbox and read them almost immediately and they're always eye-opening and and just so important so where can people go to do that uh thanks the uh the website is culturalresearchcenter.com and if you go there you'll find a place where you can sign up to get alerts from us about when the next report comes out i try to put them out every two to three weeks uh you know and, and try to make sure that i'm not wasting your time i hate that so uh, i'm trying to be mindful of the fact that you've got a life and you know it's different from mine so here's something that i think will add value to your life so if you go to that culturalresearchcenter.com you can sign up you'll also find when you get there there's probably a little thing that talks about a book called uh, the american worldview inventory 2021-22 and that's a compilation of some of the past reports we've done in the last year and a couple of additional articles that i wrote that again dig into this data and try to make it practical and useful to people. So that might be a resource that would be helpful as well. And that's also the place that when the uh, ACU worldview assessment becomes available online for people, we'll announce it there. So that would be a good place for you to check out. So hopefully that'll be useful to you. Perfect. And I can vouch for it being valuable when it comes. It's it's a great amount of information. So that's not overwhelming, but gives you a lot to chew on. So thank you again so much for joining me on the show today. Yeah. Thank you, Natasha. That's all for now, friends. Thanks so much for listening. And as always, if you're enjoying the podcast, I'd so much appreciate it if you would take just a minute to leave a rating or a brief review on your podcast player, wherever that might be. Helps other people find out about the show, and I really appreciate seeing your comments. So take care, and we'll talk with you soon. Bye-bye.